Today we are continuing our study of the book of Judges, and we are continuing to look at Gideon, one of the most prominent figures in this book. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 7 as the reading and open proclamation of God's word is an act of worship. Judges chapter 7, we began to look at Gideon last week and we'll continue to look at him next week as well. But if you recall, last week we looked at how God called and commissioned Gideon and prepared him to deliver Israel. And so today we're picking up right there where we left off as we will consider how now the Lord sends him into battle. Judges chapter 7, our focus this morning will be on verses 1 through 23. Let's listen together as a community to God's word being openly declared in our midst. Judges 7. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah, in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then twenty-two thousand of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go with you. So we brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall sit by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink... And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian in all the camp. 
As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men, three, the hundred men who were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, "A sword for the Lord and for Gideon." Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bet-Shetah towards Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Gideon. Amen. Brother, this is God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon the preaching of it. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do know and confess that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we ask that you would take this ancient story and that you would show us and teach us who you are and how you have worked in similar ways through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would pour out your spirit, even now, that we might see and adore the one true and living God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Whether we are talking about Israel's victory over their enemies in the ancient Near East, or whether we're talking about Christ's victory at the cross, or even our own victory over sin and unbelief, a fundamental truth of Scripture is that all of God's works are for the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to His name. This is, without a doubt, a fundamental truth of the Christian faith, is it not? Sola Dei Gloria? To God alone be the glory? But it's interesting, although we freely admit this, although we freely and readily repeat this in the catechism, the flip side of this equation doesn't come quite so easily to us, does it? If God's glory and the demonstration of His power is the ultimate aim of all of His works, then that must mean that human strength and human glory must by necessity recede into the background. To state this another way, as John the Baptist famously said, he must increase. But the flip side of that is that I must decrease. 
If God is to be revealed as mighty and powerful in his works, then the weakness and the inability of man must be exposed as well. The reality is, nobody likes to be weak, do we? Human weakness is not a trait that is valued by our culture, or for any cult, by any culture for that matter. Particularly here in the West. This is America, right? This is a, a society where the strong and the assertive and the daring and the self-sufficient are highly valued. These are characteristics of what it means to be an American. To be independent. To be free. To pursue life and happiness as we so desire. But the truth, of course, is that this kind of self-sufficiency has also infiltrated the church as well. We have, in our culture, an epidemic of man-centeredness in the American church. So often, even we believe that the Christian life, that the church, that the things of God are all about us. We tend to be proud of our gifts and accomplishments. We tend to rely upon our own strength and ingenuity. So many attempt to, to build the church and a name for themselves through, through marketing techniques and entrepreneurial strategies. But even sanctification, the Christian life, so often come, becomes all about our disciplines, our personal devotion, our personal piety. It's, it's natural to us. It's natural to our sinful nature to overestimate our own abilities and to underestimate God's abilities and His simple, ordinary means by which He accomplishes His purposes. Of course, the fallout from this, perhaps you've seen it in your own life and in our culture as well, the fallout is that when we succeed, we're proud. We're puffed up. We, we pull down some of that glory for ourselves. But when we fail, we're, we're despondent. We're, we're anxious. We're stressed. We're depressed because we're living life as if everything depends upon us. All of this neglects the power of God. All of this is an attempt to rob Him of the glory that's due to His name. Well, in the face of this ever-present reality and struggle, today we come to a story of human weakness. Gideon and his 300 men. Despite all the talk that you may see, whether it's, you know, in Veggie Tales, as somebody reminded me of this week in the story of Gideon, uh, or whatever else that you've heard about the mighty Gideon and his mighty courageous men, this story is the epitome of what Jesus says to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that my power is made perfect in weakness. As he does throughout all of Scripture, God always works redemption in a way that reveals rather than obscures his power and glory. And so the question that we're faced with today is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? 
Do you actually believe and live as though God's power is made perfect in your weakness? Or is this something that, while you might confess with your mouth and give lip service to, the reality is you actively oppose it when God begins to weaken you in order to manifest His glory. That's what I want to consider today. How God's power is made perfect in human weakness. Three things, three points today from this passage kind of guide us through it. The first is this. Often, God intentionally weakens his children in order to accomplish his purposes. Often, God intentionally, purposely, actively, decidedly weakens his children in order to accomplish his purposes. We pick up the narrative here in Judges chapter 7. And, of course, if you remember from last week, Gideon's weakness has already been on full display. God approached Gideon in chapter 6, as we considered. And as he, when he does, Gideon is you know, kind of fearfully cowering in the corner. He's afraid of the Midianites. And then he responds to God and says, Don't you know that I'm the weakest brother in my clan, and my clan is the weakest clan in all of Israel? And this, of course, plays out in the narrative. Right? Remember, he tears down the altar of Baal in obedience to the Lord, but he does so under the cover of darkness because he's afraid. And then he's, he won't even go into battle until God proves that he's mightier than Baal with the fleece and the, uh, the dew test. Right? Where Gideon basically said, prove to me that you're greater than the rain god. So at this point, we might be tempted to think, you know, enough is enough, right? God has sufficiently demonstrated the weakness of Gideon. Clearly, this is not a man who's fit for battle in his own power. Okay, Lord, now you can step in and save the day. Now come on in here and receive the glory, right? That's not what happens. In chapter 7, verse 1, verse 1 of our passage, Gideon gathers the people of Israel outside the Midian camp. At this point, Israel's numbers are about 32,000 we see here, which is up against what we estimate maybe about 120,000 Midianites. Remember, their camels and their, their, their men are, were too num- numerous to count. They were like locusts spread over the land. But right away, In verse 2 of our passage, right away comes the central, all-encompassing point. The entire story is explained in this verse. The Lord said to Gideon, verse 2, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. This is the point of the story right here. And what it shows us is that God's ultimate concern in this story is not simply Israel's salvation. 
God's purposes here aren't really just to save Israel from these evil Midianites who were oppressing them. Here I want you to remember how God's sovereignty is a prominent theme in this book. God brought Midian in to oppress Israel on purpose. To chasten them. They hadn't fallen under this evil regime by accident. God is the one calling the shots here. And so, in response, God also isn't just fixing the circumstances. He has a particular goal and an end in mind. And His goal is to glorify Himself and to turn the hearts of Israel back to their God. Of course, as we see this today... We ought to see that in our life, things are no different. Like Israel here in this moment, you may think that your life is spiraling out of control. You may think right now that you are, are, are under this weight and difficulty of circumstances and that God is abandoning you or has lost control or that he doesn't love you. But God is sovereign over everything in your life as well. And His ultimate purpose for you, like it is with Israel here, is not your comfort and pleasure. It's not even your provision and safety or your health. God's ultimate purpose for you is to work in and through you to bring glory to His name. And to do so in order that the whole world sees His glory. And to do so so that you, like Israel, can say, I can't boast in my own hand as if I have done these things. Brethren, I I stop to emphasize this. Because if you don't understand this, life will never make sense to you. You were created for God and for His purposes. And though there are many wonderful benefits to the salvation that we have as the children of God, His glory, not our benefit, His glory and power, not our comfort, is the ultimate end of all of His work. So with His glory... Being the ultimate end of all his work, what does the Lord do here but intentionally weaken Gideon so that it's abundantly clear that Israel and Gideon have no room to boast? The first thing we see here in verse 3 is that God tells them that whoever is fearful and trembling can return home. This is in line with Deuteronomy 28 because. Um, fear in battle can be demoralizing to the other soldiers. So it's legitimate. If you're afraid, go home. And 22,000 go home. Gideon's probably like, I didn't really mean that, you know. (laughs) Just kidding. I didn't think you'd take me up on that offer. But Israel now is down to 10,000 men, men, which is, of course, barely even 10% of what we estimate uh, they are facing with the enemy, Midian. This, of course, though, is still too many. And so, in verses 4 through 8, God further narrows down the army. The Lord has Gideon uh, take the men for a drink. 
and uses this as a means to divide them. What we have is that some men lay down and kneel, uh, kneel down and, and lap water like a dog, right? While others get some water and they bring it up to their mouth to drink. The men who lap like a dog, number 300, and they stay and everyone else is then sent home. As I studied this, I was amused at how commentators and speculators uh, love to theorize about what's going on here in this passage. Some say that the ones who brought their hands up to their mouth were keeping their head up, right? So they are eyes on the enemy. They're ready for action um, as opposed to those who were just, you know, unconsciously just caring about their thirst and they, they weren't even paying attention. And so it was the strong ones that were sent home. It is theorized. Others argue, I think perhaps more plausibly, that um, Caleb actually means dog. The name Caleb. So the writer maybe is perhaps making an allusion to the kind of paradigm warrior, right? Uh, in Israel's history, in referencing how they drank like a dog. But ultimately, though, at the end of the day, all of this misses the point. I don't believe that lapping like a dog is a statement of good or bad in any... It's just a random way of dividing the men up. The point that we should see here is that Yahweh is intentionally choosing to weaken the entire army of Israel. He wants to make them as weak as possible. He's not choosing the best 300. These men are not especially courageous or fit for war. In fact, even if we look in verse 8, this Hebrew word that is translated as retained really implies that they had to be compelled to stay. The point that we ought to see is that God wants them to be as weak as possible so that they see His power and His glory. And thus, our takeaway from that is that sometimes God intentionally weakens His children. Sometimes He intentionally weakens you. He does this so that His power might be evident in your life, so that you will not rely upon yourself, in order that you may not boast in the things that you enjoy, so that His power is made perfect in your weakness. No doubt some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. God's weakened you. And you've painfully but but joyfully learned to to kiss that rod of God's correction, knowing it is for your good out of His love. But you know, some of you, what this means is that God may pull out from under you everything that you're relying on right now. And you may be tempted to see that Not as an act of love, but as an act of God's losing control or as an act of his frustration with you. But God does this often because he loves you and he's pushing you back upon that steadfast rock of ages so that at the end of the day, His glory and His power breaks through in your life. And you can sing with the psalmist, 
Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to Your name. Glory give. God intentionally weakens Gideon and Israel. God sometimes intentionally weakens even you. And He does this because of His love. But God isn't quite done with preparing Gideon for battle at this point. He's whittled things down to 300 men, which is a skeleton of a real army. So the second thing we come to here in preparation for this battle is that even in our weakness, God stoops to assure us in our fears. Even in our weakness, God stoops to assure us in our fears. Or perhaps to give us assurance in our fears. Right after bringing this army down to an absurdly low number of 300, the Lord declares in verse 9 that he has given Midian into Gideon's hand. He declares it to him right there. I've given them to you. But notice the very next thing that we see in verses 10 and 11. He says to Gideon, the very next thing, if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Brethren, we should stop dead in our tracks right here at this moment. Just gaze with, with mouths open at the compassion and the fatherly care of our God. God doesn't weaken Gideon and then turn a deaf ear to his obvious fears. God doesn't just shout from the sky, I've given them into your hand, now I demand you fall in line. He doesn't even wait for Gideon himself to say something like, Lord, I'm trembling with fear. No. Psalm 103, 14 says, He knows our frame. He knows our frailty. He knows that we are but dust. He knows how Gideon is terrified at being weakened to such an extent. And how does he respond to this fear? He doesn't shame Gideon. He doesn't lash out in anger at Gideon's struggle to believe. He doesn't resolve to teach Gideon a lesson that he'll never forget. No, he condescends. He stoops. He comes down to Gideon to give him assurance of what he's promised. What a loving and compassionate God in our weakness, in our struggles, in our unbelief, in our fears. God tells him here to go to the Midianite camp and eavesdrop. And that's what Gideon does. There he hears this enemy soldier talk about a dream. A dream where, in verse 13, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. Remember that Gideon was threshing grain when the Lord called him. Um, so this kind of this cake of barley is... A subtle allusion to Gideon himself. A, a kind of humorous note here that undoubtedly Gideon understood right away. 
So then this comrade who's hearing this dream says, this is a sword of Gideon. We're done. We're finished. It's over. And when he hears this, Gideon's fears are relieved. What's amazing about this is that God essentially uses a Midianite, an enemy of his people, to prophesy their own imminent destruction. And when Gideon hears this prophecy in verse 15, what does he do? He worships, we read. He worships and then returns to the camp ready for battle. Do you see the larger ramifications here of how this is playing out? Gideon believes the word of God, not necessarily when it comes to him directly from God himself, but when it comes through the mouth of a fellow human being, even an enemy of God. This is the power of God's word. It's effectiveness as well when it comes through a human mediator. And it's a power that does not depend upon the sufficiency of the speaker. It should be easy then to see the connections here in our own day as well. Through the public ministry of the Word of God and worship, God stoops to you every single Lord's Day. He speaks through an imperfect human messenger. And not only this, but God also stoops to assure you that He means what He says by giving you tangible signs of bread and wine, things that you can taste and touch and handle. And he's saying to you, I am here with you. Everything I have said will come true. There's no need to fear. There's no need to doubt. And Gideon's response is the same way that we ought to respond as well, with worship. With worship and then to get up and walk out of here and set our hand upon the will of God. God's word and God's work in this world are always aimed at invoking worship in us. As we see his glory, as we see his majesty, as we hear those precious promises spoken to us and confirmed to us in these elements. And so us, as we hear God speak, as we receive assurance of His presence with us, as we receive assurance of His power with us, we too then are called to respond in worship and then to get up and engage in that spiritual battle where we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him. God, through his word, God, through simple, ordinary, earthly means, loves his children enough. He loves you enough to stoop and assure your fears, to calm them, even in your weakness. Well, at this point of the story, the end of the matter is but a foregone conclusion. 
We see, of course, God weaken Gideon, but then assure him, I'm with you. And that leads us to our third and final point. Third and finally, God's purposes always advance from the standpoint of human weakness. God's purposes always advance from the standpoint of human weakness. Here in verse 16 through 23, Gideon and his 300 men move to the edge of camp. They light torches and they hide them in jars. And then they suddenly blow trumpets, break the jars, as so to appear as a large army. Trumpets, back then in that uh, type of warfare, were normally blown by captains of companies or captains of regiments, what we might call them. So you can imagine there's 300 men, perhaps scattered on the hillside at night, blowing trumpets. It would have given the impression that there were 300,000 men outside their camp. Hence the confusion. And so with the blowing of a trumpet... History is reenacted. Just like Jericho, the walls come tumbling down. The people are scattered in utter confusion. They start fighting among themselves, and they are ripe for the slaughter. Once again, we see that Israel's seemingly insurmountable odds only proved to be an illusion. The only thing they should have ever feared was their own sinfulness. That's the only thing you should ever fear as well. None of their enemies had a chance with the Lord on their side. And yet, even in great victory, there is an uncomfortable note to all of this. Foreshadows what lies ahead, what we will look at next week. But in verse 18 and verse 20, the battle cry of Israel, as Gideon told them, was for the Lord and for Gideon. This is a strange request given just how far the links that God has gone to ensure that he receives the glory rather than man. This is kind of the turning point in the narrative where it's a sign that maybe Gideon is turning into somebody else. Amazing. Even in utter weakness, sinful man claws for every bit of personal glory he can get. Even Gideon, then, is not the kind of leader Israel ultimately needs. There's still a longing, an anticipation, a need for someone greater to come, as we will consider next week. But for the purposes of today, Israel defeats her enemies. And God's purposes are advanced through human weakness. Here we see a weak leader, Gideon. We see a weak army, 300 men. We even see weak weapons, which really are no weapons at all. Empty jars and torches. This plays into the larger theme of the book of Judges. Ehud's dagger, little dagger, right? Shamgar's ox goad, Jael's tent peg. Samson's jawbone of the donkey. These strange, ordinary household tools, these simple things of the world, these weak weapons that end up taking down the mightiest enemies of God. Could it be any more explicit? Salvation is of the Lord. 
the simplicity and the weakness of the instrument, both the humans and the weapons themselves, serves to magnify the power and the glory of the one who wields it. It's fitting then, as we see this victory, that our thoughts ought to turn directly to the gospel. What is the epitome of God's power being made perfect in human weakness? It's God himself coming to earth in the second person of the Trinity to take the form of a man. A man without noble birth or distinction. A man with no appearance or beauty that we should desire him. And this fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, accomplished redemption not by riding in on a white horse, slaying his enemies and triumphing over them with great pomp and glory, but through suffering and dying at the hands of sinful men. Through undergoing God's judgment for, by becoming a curse in the place of sinners so that we might be saved. The man, Jesus Christ, was weak. The manner in which he conquered suffering and dying, which was utterly humiliating, was weak. Even the weapon, the instrument of the cross, is foolish and offensive and weak. Jesus Christ then is the greater Gideon. He is the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He is the one who truly believed the word of his father and then perfectly obeyed. He is the one who conquered all his and our enemies. He is the one who successfully leads his people to victory. So where then are we in this story if we're not Gideon? If Gideon points us to Christ, who are we to identify with here? I want to put before you that we ought to identify with the 300 soldiers. The church is that new creation kingdom of God. And we are called to wage spiritual warfare in this present age. We are the weak and the beggarly army of the Lord. God chose us, not because of our might or strength or gifts or power or anything in us, but so that he might receive all the glory and all the praise so that we might say, my hand has not saved me. God has done this. So in this respect, yes, we are we are vastly outnumbered. We are weak in the eyes of the world. Our weapons are pathetic. What are our weapons? The message of the cross. The message of the cross. It's like it was said of Winston Churchill in World War II through his radio addresses. He harnessed the English language and he sent it into battle. That's exactly what God has done for us. God intentionally chose the weak people, the weak weapon, that which 1 Corinthians 1.28 is foolish in the eyes of the world. He did so in order to shame the wise. 
He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And he did this, as the word says here in 1 Corinthians, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because the word does it all. That simple, ordinary, seemingly boring message of the gospel that everybody knows that, right? Because the word does it all. Because the word accomplishes his purposes through weak and despised messengers. There is no room for boasting. And God alone receives the glory for this salvation. Don't you see then how this all comes back around? To God's power being made perfect in your weakness. Just like Gideon's army harnessed the power of God in a jar that was then broken to reveal the light. It's no accident that the Apostle Paul later says, we too hold this treasure in jars of clay. And often it takes us being broken for the light of the gospel to shine so that the blazing glory of God might be revealed so that we being made utterly pathetic, broken, shattered on the floor, not even knowing where to pick up the pieces of our life, we cling to him by faith. We trust in his promises. And he is with us even to the end of the age. And that is enough. That's enough. How will you respond when God weakens you? How will you respond if God breaks you? Are you going to kick and scream and complain? Are you going to turn to him and say, I thought you loved me. You're going to dig in your heels and still cling and grasp for that shred of glory that you so crave? Or are you going to worship? Are you going to get up to obey and say with Paul, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses. I am content with insults with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There is nothing so contrary to your nature than such a statement. Everything in this world, everything within you, screams at you that weakness is something to be avoided at all costs. But to the eye of faith, we know When we are weak, He is glorified. When we are weak, we are really, truly strong because His power is then perfected in us. Let us say with John the Baptist, may He increase and may we decrease. May God write these things upon our hearts. And give assurance to our souls even today through this word. Amen. Let's pray.